Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have on board Michael Macy from Coda Capital to talk all about the topic of managing your wealth before and after a business sale. With a track record of more than two decades of experience as a financial advisor to family offices, high net worth individuals and institutional clients, Michael offers some great insights on the importance of having a really solid wealth management plan in the context of an M&A transaction. And in this episode with Michael, we discuss the common mistakes that business owners make in this area and provide some great tips for accountants, advisors and owners of businesses themselves on how to avoid them. So don't go anywhere. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area. And hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. So, hi, Michael. Thanks a lot for coming on to um, join us today on The Deal Room. Hi, Joanna. Great to be here. Thank you. Great, 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 great. Okay, now look, how about we start off at the very beginning? Maybe if you can give us a very quick background of who you are um, and, and I guess how you work with businesses. Okay, so Coda was founded or started about four years ago by a group of very senior, experienced people from the private wealth industry. It really started with a view that it was time for and an independent voice in wealth management to emerge in Australia. And it was really, you know, the market was really crying out for, for that need. Uh, and, and so the, the business started. And what we do is we help wealthy families, wealthy individuals manage their, their wealth, manage their investment portfolios. Uh, and that is everything from, from the tax advice and structuring, making sure the family understands what the, the mission for their wealth is, but also Obviously, the really important part is implementing uh, the right types of investment portfolios for those families. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. And so uh, I guess if, if we're thinking about um, the sale environment, what are some of the key concerns that um, you think these owners of businesses have about um, uh, wealth after a sale? Okay, so the... When when a, a entrepreneur comes to that point where they they ready to sell a business, it's a it's a really big decision. It's the business has been their baby, so to speak, mm. and they spent a lot of time building it, and and really put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into making it happen. Mm. And then they reach this this inflection point for a variety of reasons. It's time to sell. It might be time to sell to someone with the capital to take the business to the next level. It might just be an intergenerational issue, and there's a whole variety of other reasons. But they come to this point, and they've got a whole whole lot of concerns. They go from a situation of being extremely in control, being able to make decisions, pull levers to make the business work, understand the cash flow it's producing and so on, um, to a situation where they have a a lump of cash and they, they need to think about how to transition to that next phase. They also have other issues um, that are aligned to that. You know, how do they? How does the family 
um, to move through this this period, through this change together. What, what do you mean when you say that? What What do you mean? How will the family work through this together? What are some of the issues? Well, you can you have a variety of things. It could be a family member has been very involved in the business. You know, will their role still exist in the business? Will they need to find something else to do? Could be that other family members haven't been so involved. You know, and how should they benefit from the transaction? So it comes back to communicating and dealing with uncertainty. If there's a common theme, probably it's dealing with uncertainty as you move through a situation that you know and understand extremely well to a new situation that it's uncharted territory for a lot of people. I guess we're talking here about change management for individuals. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, not a bad way of thinking about it. It's, it's almost like a project where family could be could even be a senior executive approaching the point where they don't want to play that role inside big corporate and they want to step, step out but they're getting to a point where they need to think about you know do they have the right structures in place you know what sort of investment portfolio do they need to build to produce an income and grow the, the capital steadily over time and so some of the concerns from a financial perspective, I guess, then relate to how do we make this pool of wealth that we've now liquidated from the sale of our business turn into something that will give us all that we require now into the future from a financial perspective, you know. Is, is that right? Is that, the, is that the issues that they're coming in with, with this fear that this pool of wealth that they've now managed to realise will witter away if they don't take the right steps? Absolutely. That's, that is the, the number one issue that people, people deal with. And, you know, invariably they have either their own bad experience with an investment portfolio um, outside the business or a friend that had a bad experience. Mm. And, and, and what we find is that you know, there are a lot of portfolio mistakes that people make. One extreme end is they build a portfolio that is almost 100% cash and just isn't capable of generating the returns that they need, either from an income point of view or just a long-term growth point of view. And Um, and why are they doing that? I mean, you you know, um, I I guess if you think about it, I mean, these are very smart people. They've built up a business or or they've grown a business from wherever it was over a period of time. But then stacking all their money in cash, you know, sounds like maybe they're just a bit scared of losing it through any form of more aggressive (laughs) investment than cash. But it's like a peculiar choice for well-educated people to make. Yeah, and I think it comes back to being able to establish the right relationships with people that you trust yeah. and people that sit alongside you helping you make the right decision. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why the Coda business model is quite unique is that we are an independent firm. Um, there's a quite a strict ASIC definition of what independence is, but ultimately, in a nutshell, that means that the fee that Coda charges you is the only fee that we collect. So we charge you a transparent fee for advice. There aren't hidden trail commissions. There aren't hidden rebates. If any of those things exist, they get rebated to the client. So we like our clients to understand that the advice we're giving them is the advice we believe is in their best interest, not because of some other hidden agenda. You know, we don't manufacture our own product. Um, we, we go and find the best products that we can find out in the marketplace to solve um, the 
the investment need of the client. It's probably not a great term, but in terms of maybe we can call it a solution. Okay, so you talked about the mistake of whacking all of their money into cash. What, what are other common mistakes that these ex-business owners are making? So the other big mistake is the well-intentioned portfolio, we can call it call that. So what, what it really is is a collection of okay ideas or decent ideas on their own, but the way the portfolio is put together, it's really just a collection of ideas rather than a portfolio with a cohesive plan, and you end up with a lot of assets that have quite a high level of correlation, and by correlation I mean that the assets behave in the same way at the same time. So you don't really get the benefit of diversification that you get from a well-built portfolio. What's an example of that, Michael? Look, the really typical mistake you see is you'll see a portfolio of um, ASX top 20 stocks. So by definition, it will be quite heavily concentrated in the four major banks, probably some BHP, some other large cap stocks here. And then for some fixed interest exposure, it will quite often have some hybrids, some bank hybrids, um, which aren't really fixed interest at all. And I think people need to understand that. But the big thing there is that you've got a group of stocks and fixed interest or or cash-like instruments that are just very, very heavily correlated to the performance of Australian banks, which is very heavily correlated to the performance of Australian property. And so you've got a portfolio that on the surface looks quite diversified, but in reality is actually exposed to a fairly narrow and highly correlated set of risks. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Are there other mistakes that you're seeing out there? So A, the lack of diversification and uh, I guess B, as you talked about before, putting too much in cash, which is is a form of (laughs) lack of diversification, I guess. What else are people doing wrong? You know, my feeling uh, from dealing with many of these exiting owners is quite often that they feel that they've got a bit of diversification. They've got a bit of property thrown over here. They've got a bit of, you know, share investment over there and um, then a bit of cash in the middle and, and they feel that that is giving them diversification. What else are the considerations other than that, I guess? I think the um, probably the other one is maybe the entrepreneur that has done it once and then wants to do it all, all again and mm. takes, takes too much risk mm. in that, that second stage or the, the second act, if you like. Mm. That can yeah. be a mistake. But the other one is just the, the, the planning piece, so not making best use of the different structures that are available for asset protection and tax management. Mm. Um, so really before you get to the investment piece, starting at the beginning and saying what are the, the right structures to use um, from an asset protection point of view, from a, a tax point of view, but also an interge- intergenerational family point of view. Mm. And I guess this is where the subject of uh, trusts comes up. <laughs> but what do you, what's some shining examples that you've seen of, of really um, uh, problematic approaches, mistakes people are making from a structuring perspective when they come in to see you? Uh, it's, it's, that's really the area that I call in one of my colleagues who's a specialist in this area. And, and I work with, with him or that group to, to identify those issues. That's one of the things that we, you know, we don't pretend to be as individuals masters of everything. We're a team and I would, I'd call in 
um, the, the guys that work on, on that aspect to review the client setup and suggest um, the best way of doing it for them, identify any issues. But we also work with um, our clients, existing accountants, existing lawyers, all those sorts of people who um, have played a role and, and probably continue to play a role in, in that client's affairs. Mm, mm. Okay, all right. So um, uh, when, when should this planning process uh, begin? I, I mean, I'm assuming you're about to say uh, perhaps before they've gotten the, the cash in their hot little hands, but you tell us. <laughs> no, absolutely. I think sooner is always better. And in many cases, we meet someone many years in advance of them reaching that liquidity event. Yeah. Uh, and we might have an ongoing conversation with, you know, really touching base a couple of times a year as things evolve. But it, sooner is always better. And, and we're always very happy to build relationships with people, planning for things that will happen well down the road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, and so do, do you have any tips for our um, business owners out there or for, or for our accountants perhaps who are working with business owners that are considering, you know, an exit in the near future? What should they be doing or thinking about from this perspective? Well, I, I think for the business owner, the entrepreneur, their first priority really should be on continuing to run their business and maximising the value of that business and being very focused on that, um, but also realising that it's important to establish relationships with people that you can trust. So I'd, I'd be saying, you know, if you think, even if you think this event is a few years down the track for you, um, there's no harm in starting to um, look around and, and work out who you like and who you can trust to work with because you don't want to do that in a rush at the last minute. Um, so, and, and you don't want to be distracted from, particularly when you get to that pressure point of finalising a transaction, thinking about, gee, what do I do next? You, it'd be good if you already had that plan in place and you can you know, really make sure you maximise the opportunity at that crunch point. And for accountants and, and lawyers, I'd say, the same sort of thing. They should be guiding their clients to think a few years ahead and, and not be in a rush. Same time, I'd say it's always not too late to address some of these issues, even if you've passed that liquidity event, to come back and say, am I really making the best use of this pool of capital that I've got? Is this really um, set up the best way it possibly could be? And you know, sometimes just reaching out and asking someone to help you review that is a really sensible idea. We, mm. we do that all the time. And uh, I guess in um, tackling this issue early enough, it can perhaps also help you drive an understanding of the timing of exit as well. Not that you always have an absolute ability to fully time an exit, but certainly if you know what you're targeting in terms of the money that you require from an exit, then it can help you in terms of forward planning as to how long it's going to take you to grow the business to the point that you're going to get that amount. Yeah, I think that's a, a Good point. And it also means that you can bring the, the relevant other parties along. So you can, you know, if there are maybe some children involved or brothers, other parts of the family involved, or maybe even key employees that you might have incentivized along the way, um, get them involved and have them understand what the plan is 
and that there's a sort of an educational process there, for want of a better description, that that helps to get everyone on the same page and, and point in the same direction. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think in in our discussions in the past, you've talked about this concept of best solutions versus convenient solutions. What, what do you mean by that? Maybe if you can talk through that a little bit. Okay, that, that's an interesting when it comes back to portfolio construction. So when when we build um, portfolios for clients, um, and I, I had this experience again when I met a new client last week and they, they had their um, family company board in the presentation as well. And we showed them, we talked about our investment philosophy and, and how we do things. And one of the things that they, one of, one of the key pieces of feedback they gave us is that we, introduced a lot of investment opportunities that they just hadn't seen anywhere else. The reason that we can do that is our research team spends a lot of time travelling the globe and thinking about really niche opportunities, making contact with with boutique managers um, and so on. And those managers are typically um, harder to deal with, niche asset classes are harder to deal with, but we think it's a really important part of the value add that we bring to our clients particularly from the risk-reward um, point of view with building out the portfolios. So we, we end up with a much more diversified portfolio for our clients. And the idea of that is that we can compound their capital at a really good rate over time, regardless of the market cycle. So what are your what, what sort of rates do you, you know, generally target? I presume it changes from client to client, but um, what, what's the general sort of rates you can get at, get the return at? Well, it, it does change a lot from client to client. The really important concept for us is um, we talk a lot about upside versus downside capture. So in the good markets, we want to capture about two-thirds of the, the good market performance and only about one-third of the bad market performance. That's the ideal scenario for us. And then what that means is you're compounding capital at a higher rate over time. If you're achieving in the order of about 10% per annum over a long period of time, that doesn't mean it will be exactly that number each year, that's an extremely good return. You know, that's, um, and particularly if you've already made a substantial amount of capital, um, you know, that, that, that's extremely good. Somewhere between between eight and twelve, eight percent and twelve percent, depending on how much risk you want to take, um, is is the sort of band people should be thinking for a really strong performing portfolio. Mm. And you were saying uh, before in your example of the client that you were sitting down with last week that there are a couple of things that really um, surprised them, things that they hadn't have thought about before um, without giving away um, all of the secret uh, strategies <laughs> that you guys, you know, uh, deliver to only your best clients. What, what are some examples of, of strategies that you guys think of that, that you know, m- maybe the rest of us wouldn't have thought of before? Um, well, one area that we are seeing really interesting opportunities in is um, with the capital requirements that banks face now, um, there's certain parts of the lending market have become quite fractured and we've seen some really experienced um, former investment bank executives who, who ran this strategy, ran this process inside of investment banks step out and set up funds where they've raised money from investors to effectively replace 
the role that the banks used to play in that market. So they're doing senior secured lending to, in some cases, it might be resource specialist strategy. In other cases, it might be an SME specialist strategy. But they're doing senior secured lending to those sorts of groups. And for senior secured lending, they're getting equity-like returns through the cycle. Mm. Um, that's an example of a niche strategy that's harder for people to access and you've, you've got to work a bit harder to find the managers and build relationships, but that's great. Mm. Another really good example um, is uh, a manager, a equities manager that's now very large. Um, we actually originally allocated money to when it was a very small manager. Uh, it only had about $50 million under management and usually groups like ours won't allocate to a small scale manager but where we understand their process and know the people involved we'll, we'll do that because we, we're backing the individuals to do a great job um, that manager performed extremely well over the next several years for us achieving really really good return but we actually took the money back just recently because they've gotten to such a size that we thought their ability to keep generating those sort of returns is is much lower so much less likely you know, that's at the point where most of the mainstream um, investment advisors are actually allocating money. It's, it's quite a different process and, and I think achieves really good results for clients over time. That's one of the things that really impressed this group in particular. Mm, okay, great. So um, I, I guess the message out there for, uh, you know, maybe M&A advisors and for accountants is... Um, I, I guess just because the transaction is done doesn't mean your role in advising the clients has finished. You know, maybe it's really important to think of providing a bit of a value add in terms of reminding them to think about the what next and planning for the what next after the business. So, for those advisors out there and accountants, you know, what suggestions do you have for them in terms of identifying where there's a critical weakness and where you know they can assist their client by moving them on to someone like yourself that has specific uh, expertise in these areas um, look I think if the advisor senses that there is some reluctance about completing the transaction then I think if they, they ask some questions around why they'll probably find one of the key reasons is that that high level of uncertainty about what the future holds. Mm. And that's that's where we can really help them navigate that, that the bridge of uncertainty. So I think if, if advisors are listening to their, their clients um, and you know, understanding the motivations, the fears, all those sorts of things, you know, I think if they touch on that, it's probably where they get someone like us involved to, to help navigate. Yeah, that's a really good point. We've we've had a few podcasts on this topic of, um, you know, just being sensitive to and aware of the role of uh, emotions in, in this process on, on both sides, but particularly so, I think, um, often on the side of the vendor or the seller. Uh, and certainly I've seen it play out uh, quite a few times before where uh, you have parties digging in, but the real reason they're digging in is not 
why they say they're digging in, <laughs> you know, and they may not even realise the concern that they have that, that, that's really sort of eating at them sometimes subconsciously. So I think it's a really good point that as advisors, we're thinking about these issues and then may able to bring in the right resources to assist our clients in um, re- really picturing what life looks like afterwards, assisting them in this uh, individual change management process, <laughs> as we would say. <laughs> but, you know, helping them get a bit of certainty as well. Yeah, I think that's right. It is a really emotional time for people. And, you know, if they've had a portfolio, even if they've gone through that and they've got a portfolio that's not so great, it can be quite an emotional time uh, acknowledging that the initial plan didn't work. Mm. and getting someone else to help them come in and, and build a more robust portfolio. So e- either way, there are issues that push around some, some pretty strong emotions for people and there's, like any, any area where you're out of your comfort, getting some good expert advice is a good idea. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, look, thank you so much for coming on today to talk to us, Michael. If our listeners are interested in making contact with you, how do they go about doing that? My email address is michael.massey, that's M-A-S-S-E-Y, at codacapital.com. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me initially. Our website obviously has all those details as well. All right, and we'll put a link in our show notes as always, just in case you're running along the beach there, half your luck (laughs) while you're listening to this and didn't get to jot down those details. You'll be able to find it in our show notes and that will link straight through to Michael. Well, look, thanks, Michael. Thanks for coming on the show today. Um, I think it's been a lot of really useful information and a lot of useful considerations to hand over to our advisors to be thinking about over and above just the transaction itself. Thanks, Joe. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me along. Well, that concludes our episode with Michael Macy of Coda Capital on the topic of wealth management before and after a sale. In this episode, Michael highlighted some helpful tips for business owners and advisors working in the mergers and acquisition space. Just as a recap for business owners who are out there considering an exit by selling their business into the future, the top three tips are plan out ahead of time how you'll manage the pool of capital after selling your business. Number two, when you start off on the path of planning your exit, prioritise maximising your business value and don't allow yourself to be distracted. The best way to help yourself focus on running your business well is our third tip. That is establish relationships with people that you can trust and get the right advisors to assist you early on. Now, on the flip side, for accountants and other advisors to businesses considering an exit in the near future, we have two important tips in this area of wealth management. Number one, maybe think about guiding your clients to think about this area a few years ahead so that they can manage the pool of capital that they'll get from their sale. You might have to take the initiative here because most business owners won't understand the importance of having a wealth management plan before going to market unless, of course, they've listened to this episode too. (laughs) But number two, even if you're past a liquidity event, it's never too late to address some of the issues that we discussed in this episode. Your role in advising your client shouldn't end with the transaction. It's really important that you continue to work with your clients on the what next after the business sale, especially if there was no wealth management plan before the sale. 
So if you are interested to learn more about this topic, you can reach out to Michael and his team at Coda Capital by checking out our show notes at www.thedealroompodcast.com and there we'll have a link through to their website. And you'll also helpfully find a full transcript of this podcast episode if you're a details person and you'd really like to read through it in more detail. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you really enjoyed what you heard today. If you did and you haven't subscribed to the Deal Room podcast yet, then just head over to your Apple podcast or your other favorite podcast player and hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications straight to your phone whenever a new episode is out. And if you feel so inclined, we'd be extremely grateful if you'd leave us a review or even throw me a message on LinkedIn. I'm always really interested in hearing what our listeners have to say about what you like, what you don't like, and my door's open to chat. If at any time you have some clients who are going through this space or you're indeed a business who's looking for some legal assistance. Well, thanks again for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.